Hello there and welcome to this week's chat between uh, myself and my good friend and resident genius, Ralph Hebgen. Now, uh, before we start, um, let's just talk through that T-shirt. <laughs> well, by the way, I'm the... not a rogue, by the way. Oh, I'm not a rogue. rogue. This is just uh, a brand, okay? So I'm not say, going around to everyone saying, look at me, I'm a rogue, right? Anyway, sorry, please I go think... through that, yeah. Well, I thought somebody might have just painted that on no. your T-shirt no. in expression of his estimation or their estimation of who you, you little are. rogue. <laughs> no, you, anyway, you rogue. You rogue. Yeah, something which uh, which is is a blast from the past. I just went through my um, wardrobe today and I found this T-shirt which we made up. Uh, uh, ages ago, I don't know, 20 years ago. So when I was yeah. working at um, a now defunct broker, dressed the client with Wasserstein, and and I was I was doing some piece on the company which was at the time called Zurich Financial Services, mm -hmm. and uh, and we um, then you made a big call. week marketing tour, and we made up these T-shirts, and basically I said the company was under reserved, which which wasn't that much of a secret to be perfectly honest but so basically i made um we made up this t-shirt and i sat in meetings with clients i just can't believe you <laughs> did that but... yeah and i say I... analyst as dkw yeah. says zurich under reserved and nice. i thought it was f very funny because that's obviously what we're think... talking about yeah and and i have to say i, I say I can't believe you did that. But the thing is, I know you and I can believe you did that. Um, and I'm sure that actually the clients actually quite liked it. I well, I, I only I only wore it with uh, clients who I know, knew very well, with whom yeah. I was on friendly terms. I wouldn't have gone into a head. <laughs> Look, and I've it's never... me. Yeah, it's exactly. me. So, so, Ralph, so, Ralph, what do you think of Zurich? <laughs> well, just... Just, just read, read, it, read it, mate, and then we we just we off to the pub or something. Nice, nice, <laughs> nice, good. So there we go. So we'd uh, we'd we'd um uh we'd we'd get that out of the way initially because I thought that people would be thinking, what is this uh, all the way through? So anyway, right. So today we're going to talk about three topics. So firstly, we're going to be talking about Rishi Sunak deciding to stick with e um, with EV sales quotas despite pushing uh, back the petrol diesel deadline. Um, secondly, we'll look at the FCA's imminent launch of an investigation into how private, so that is non-quoted companies are valued. Uh, and thirdly, we'll talk about the increasing need for space insurance. Um, so um, on the first on the first topic, uh, obviously, we saw that um, Rishi Sunak rolled back various um, uh, climate commitments, including the one um, that uh, that manufacturers in the uh, should not sell uh, new petrol or diesel powered cars after 2030. Um, now that was then moved to 2035 to bring it back in line with the rest with the rest of Europe, or should I say these days Europe, not the rest of Europe, um, and. Um, and uh, there was a lot of backlash from it. Uh, we saw this week we we had you know, manufacturers manufacturers were complaining about it, 
because understandably, you know, manufacturers have to plan years and years in advance. Um, they've been planning for this 2030, but that has now been kicked into the long grass into 2035. So they were understandably uh, annoyed. Um, and we uh, ourselves said in our, in our uh, recent talk that um, it was kind of ridiculous. It w wouldn't it be ridiculous um, if the uh the government said that the car manufacturers um had still had to sell a certain quote uh, the majority of their cars had to be electric by 2030 and not pushing that out to 2035 as well well guess what uh <laughs> they left it unchanged so um you know i argued You've got the you've got the worst of all worlds here for, from the manufacturer's point of view, because they still have to um, they still they're still going to have to um, sell the majority of their uh, of the majority of the fleet that they sell is going to have to be electric vehicles. Otherwise, they're going to be absolutely massive crippling fines, I would suggest. Um so they're they're going to have to so they're still going to have to stick to that, but at the same time, there is less of an incentive for uh, for people to buy electric vehicles sooner rather than later because they've got another five years. So um, so anyway, so that I think is very tricky. Um, but what do you think, Ralph? Well, I think the same thing. I, I find this situation rather farcical, to be perfectly honest. Mm. I mean, last week, um, I, I basically commented on the same thing, and I basically said, or, or basically last week, I mean, you, you, you guys can actually listen to that if Peter ever gets around to actually <laughs> publishing it. Yes, I will yeah, too. Right, cool. Yeah. So basically, you can basically be just before this one. what I said before last week, and yeah. then compare it to what yeah. I said this week, yeah. and then you'll probably find that I'm entirely contradictory. Myself, yeah. but hey, <laughs> they realize all the holes in the arguments but anyway maybe, yeah maybe i can make up a t-shirt yeah. uh, about uh, just basically saying what i'm saying now yeah. uh, anyway so uh last week i was talking about this as well and we were we were saying that sunak was able to actually get some benefits to the sort of general public and now and i was saying if you're for example a plumbing business or whatever and you have vans which you need to replace then now you don't need to replace them by 2030 at the latest but, but by 2035 at the latest and that gives you a bit little bit of a window hmm. listen to my comment then i'm not going to repeat it all but basically that is that is a good thing um but, but at the same time, you would have thought, or I would have thought, not knowing what I know now, that the government would then also align their regulations put on car manufacturers with that newly delayed target of 2035. And in the event, they have not done this. So this is a staggered, um, a staggered demand of how much car manufacturers have to put out in in terms of electric vehicles and it goes up in steps reaching 80 percent by 2030 so in other mm -hmm. words by 2030 a car manufacturer needs to manufacture 80 percent of their output as electric vehicles and as you said i mean as originally planned people would then be there to buy them because there is nothing else there but now people do not have to buy them until five years later. The 
timeline here is 2030. I'm sort of looking at the year 2030. And manufacturers are obviously incensed about this, and, and, and rightly so, because they now have to stick to a manufacturing schedule, which from their point of view, they can no longer expect to be met by demand. Mm. And also, of course, there are other things like <clears throat> the support structure for these electric vehicles. They need to be charged. And the car manufacturers produce the vehicles. They don't produce the charging stations. So mm. the charging station industry has sort of is also in a strange limbo. Probably they will fall in line with the manufacturing industry and 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 offer the charging stations required by 2030. But arguably they might actually have a little bit more window as well because they know full well that the real target now in terms of the demand is going to be 2035. So so everything is a little bit muddled here. And and well, I don't want to steal your thunder, Peter. I think you have a you have a theory here. Of what... Yeah, right, right. I, I do love a conspiracy theory, right, yeah. or a contrarian thing. Um, but I this is this is just an opinion, right? But I think that this is all about the election. I think that um, giving consumers time at a time when they are feeling you know, the household budgets are being squeezed. I think that, that um, allowing them, giving them more time to maybe build up cash to buy a electric vehicle is going to be popular with the electorate. On the other hand, the environmentalists are strongly critical of this pushback to 2035. So what I think is, is that Sunak has done this to appease the consumers, but also to a certain extent, not lose the environmentalists completely. Because I think that it's the sort of thing that he can change quite easily after an election if he is re-elected. So for instance, um, he says this now it's okay it's still 2030 everyone all you know all systems go it, i wonder whether they the government is maybe hoping that in fact the charger network grows better than expected more people still buy electric vehicles because there are more attractive vehicles coming online so there you know there's that so actually it that you know 2035 may be academic um and in fact it may it may work itself out by 2030 so they're, they're sort of gambling with with that and the fact that they could um you know they could or, or they could it's something that they could change when they get you know when when um when sunak gets re-elected say look actually we've had to think about it everyone we're just going to have to roll it back and make it 2035 so no. well, he's maybe I think if he would have pushed the other one back to twenty thirty five, he really would have lost the environment of the environmentalists, if you like, or made them more, um, you know, uh, against the government. Whereas this is sort of in the middle, um, and again, I guess it throws the the ball in the court of of the opposition potentially. 
it, to put pressure it, it's on them. Possible. Um, if what you're saying is true, or if there's some validity to your theory, it, it would just simply highlight the difficult spot mm. in which the Tory government finds itself at the moment because you have to gamble in in this fine-tuned way you know and you have to walk a tightrope between uh, garnering support from the general public and not losing or, or, or not not aggravating the environmental lobby any mm. more than you have done already mm. then it, it sort of shows that there is very little um, maneuverability space, very little flexibility for you, and 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 that's probably the reality of it. But mm. yeah, I I don't really know. I um, I wonder what is behind it. It may just be um, poor planning in in the end. Yeah, tell exactly. you the truth, and yeah. um, because the environmental <laughs> lobby is going to be very unhappy with this anyway and is of course vociferously against this mm. the situation may just be that we're going to get more overt activism against the government than we have already i mean we have um the uh, keep forgetting their name um last generation I, I, I think that's in germany Extinction Rebellion, there we are. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, it's Extinction Rebellion, but there's a splinter group which has a split off from them, which is uh, Just Stop Oil. There we are. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. And these guys, they glue themselves to the street and help the environment in that way. So you can probably see what I <laughs> think of that just by the subtext here. <laughs> but... Uh, but that must help the environment, so that makes a lot of sense. But uh, whether, but, but uh, I mean, my, my personal opinions aside, whether it makes sense or it doesn't make sense is not the point. The point is that there is a clear, vociferous uh, voice in the public against the way in which environmental policies are being implemented, and they find their way in. I would say violent activism, uh, and that's not going to go away. That that's going to get worse because mm. of policies like this, and then you have externalities, which is the sort of cost which arises. Um, you know, sort of which would which you wouldn't have in an economy if it was normal cost of business. So these kind of people, these kind of activism, is going to increase this cost, and this might actually backfire as well. So I, I don't really know where I am on this. I I just um, record the difference here between the the two policies on the one hand to push the target back on the other hand to push to keep the target at bay in terms of the uh, for, for, for the manufacturers and that's not going to in the end that's not going to be positive for the Tory government either mm. because clearly the manufacturing lobby is uh, powerful and I think yeah I, I don't really know where I am it, it might actually come out as a net loss mm. having said last week that it might be actually a net benefit because mm. you get the get the voters on side yeah no fair enough so there we go um so more about sunak this week so uh so let's move on to the second uh topic so um this was one of those stories that this week i thought oh shall i mention it because 
I wonder whether people are actually going to be even vaguely interested in it. But I thought, do you know what? It is actually very important, right? So this is about um, the FCA looking into um, how private companies are valued. Now, I suppose you could put in context um, OpenAI, for instance, is looking for a $90 billion valuation. Now, how do you actually value a company that is not quoted? It's more difficult to do because it's not as open with its all its assets, etc., mm-hmm. um, that, say, a quoted company would be. Um, but the idea is the FCA thinks that, uh, or the, the implication is that they think that um, these private valuations are based on fantasy mm-hmm. um, and that they need to bring a bit more reality into into the mix to make sure that investors aren't um, hoodwinked, essentially. Yeah. So um, now I, I think that this sounds like it would be good. It does. It, it, I think it merits investigation, but in my, to my mind, it's hard enough valuing a quoted company uh not that i know because i haven't done it obviously you've done it a little bit more than i have um and and so how are you going to do it for a a a private company so what what do you think ralph i'm shrugging my shoulders i mean if if you do you can um okay the, the various ways to attack this problem i mean one obvious pragmatic way is to say if Microsoft purchases a 50% stake in OpenAI, I, I, I can't remember what they paid for it, but uh, $30 billion or something? What is it? Was it? Or $20 oh, billion? Or 10 yeah, billion? Let's, let's say $10 billion. Billions. Billions. That's what let's it is. Let's say $10 billion. It's just an yeah. illustrative example. Then obviously, yeah. um, so my, my example was if they, if they buy, let's say they buy 10% for $10 billion, well, that that would value the company at a hundred billion. Hmm. Um, that's just an implication of what what just happened. I mean, if ten percent is worth ten billion in the mind of Microsoft, and it clearly is because they've given you ten billion. That's the real world. That's the real money. Hmm. Then it follows that hundred percent must be worth a hundred billion. And um, so that's one way of doing it. But that's not really talking about the value of the company, because the next step would be to ask yourself, okay, that's the implied valuation, implied by the action of one investor. Mm. But what is a company valuation? What does it actually mean to value a company? Well, it means that this is the sort of money which somebody would give the owners if they wanted to purchase the company. So there has to be a link between the profitability of the company Mm. and the value, the assessed value of the company. And of course, this is a science in itself. People study this at university and business school. It's corporate valuation and it goes on forever. But in the end, what we can say, for example, simplistically perhaps but certainly evocatively there has to be a link between the post-tax profits which the company is deemed to be able to 
generate every year over a future sustainable period of time and the value of the company. And so if the company, let's say, generates 100 in earnings, earnings means post-tax profits, in earnings this year, and I think that the company can do this every year for the next 10 years, then in a, in a simplistic valuation, I can see, well, I'll add it all up, and that's 1,000, and that's kind of my value. That's not going to happen in the real world. You do it differently. It's a present value, and there's technology there, and etc. But essentially, I just wanted to highlight that there needs to be a link between the profitability of the company and the value which is assessed the company to have. Implied valuations of the nature which I have recently alluded to don't necessarily do that. If Microsoft comes in with 10 billion for 10%, yes, the implied valuation is 100 billion. But what does that actually mean? If I now take this second layer of attack, which I have just outlined, and I can then say, okay, what does 100 billion actually mean in terms of the post-tax profits? How much of a multiple would that imply for post-tax profits? And if this multiple is ridiculous, like 100 times, for example, then I would have to say, as a rational observer of the financials of this company, this is an unsustainable valuation. Microsoft have gone in and they have been happy to pay a lot for a stake in their assessment of the future earnings capacity of this company. But it's only one person, one company, one agent who evaluates this. And it may not reflect the actual reality of what this company will be able to generate in earnings in future. And if you then see, you being the investment community in general, that this is not going to happen, then of course the value will plummet. This is going to be less of an issue for private companies because they are not quoted and so therefore there is no quoted value, there's no share price to reflect this sentiment in this way. There's no quoted share price to plummet, but obviously uh, you would then um, have you now being the company, let's stay, stick with the example OpenAI, would then have limited options for the future. If they wanted to take on another investor, for example, they wouldn't pay the same money for another 10% stake because in their estimate, the valuation of the company is inappropriately high. Mm. And so this is sort of how this works for, for private companies. But um, obviously private companies, even private companies, have got um, accounts. It's just that they are not public accounts. So if you are being taken inside the company and you are tasked with, for example, an investment bank preparing an IPO, you are tasked with putting a value on the company, then you will have access to the financial information of the company. And then you would actually look at the financial information in context and, and put a value on it from first principles. And this is, I think, where, however, the FCA basically comes in, they would want to somehow put a framework on this precise process. When you are inside the company, when you are, have access to the financials of the private company, and when you put a valuation on it, um, I think the FCA would like to limit the 
subjectivity or, or the the um, the opinion flexibility which you have as a as an investment banker when you evaluate this simple example i'm making this up one come one like I might, for example, say, "Ooh, this is a fantastic business. This is going to change the world. It's going to have 30% earnings growth in the future, and I value the company like this, and I get a fantastic multiple and a very high valuation." You might come in and you would be much more pragmatic than I, and you think, "Well, what Ralph is thinking, this is like a tech fantasy, and he loves this kind of stuff. He used to read science fiction when he was 14. I never did, so I'm much more pragmatic. I don't think 30% earnings growth is anywhere near what this company." is going to make, I'm going to say it's 10%. And so my valuation is much lower. And I think the FCA wants to actually institute some sort of framework which limits the um, extent to which individual agents, individual um, institutions which are tasked with the valuation of these companies can just basically invent any assumption they want. Hmm. Yeah, I mean it's 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 crazy, isn't it? I mean, I think for many, a lot of people, eventually, I suppose they go on feel, don't they? Really? Um, I mean, you you take the the valuations as much as you can, and you maybe compare. I mean, to get to the valuations, you probably compare what something is something similar, what that you know what that is valued at, and then you plug that in. But when oh, yeah. when, it, yeah, when yeah. it's something like AI, which is really very difficult to pin down, um, it's it's very it's very hard. Um, and I think that's when you start getting fantasy valuations. People just saying, "Look, doesn't really matter. This is going to go to the moon. Every everything's fine. Just get involved." I mean, I always think um, that. Actually, this is more for quoted companies, but I always think that a sign that um, reality has, you know, has long gone is when analysts invent a new way of valuing a company, you know, so they come up with it's It's like you say, you know, if you can't score enough goals, just change the goalposts, you know, and that's what that's what often happens. So I'm always incredibly suspicious when you hear, oh, there's this new multiple for there's this new way of measuring the value of a company or whatever mm-hmm. you sort of think well hold on a minute uh, is is it is that you know is there yeah. a reason for that um Absolutely. yeah but this, uh, is bull, this is a bull market mentality when i was starting out when actually at the time we were at the same company <laughs> uh, there was a company quoted in the us and its valuation was very high mm. and analysts did precisely this uh, mm. the us analysts came up with a valuation methodology whereby they said that given the technological advantage of that particular company they might come up with products in the future that they don't even know they are able to develop at the moment Mm. And those will then generate earnings. <laughs> That's a very long way of saying, let's just put a higher number here. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is exactly the same. Yeah. And, and and of course, the regulator at the time didn't really sort of look at this uh, at all. Now, the thing is, private company, when an investment bank is tasked with going in 
and valuing this. This is only for one reason. The company wishes to actually become not a private company, but an mm. IPO. They wish to be quoted on the stock exchange. And then, of course, you already have a process which limits to some extent an arbitrary valuation because this is not done just by one investment bank, but by many investment banks, the so-called mm. syndicate. And they, they may be three or maybe five lead banks in this syndicates, and it is behoven on these banks to submit valuation reports. Mm. And these valuation reports, well, obviously they value the company, that's the task. And they have become a lot more um, reglamented, I would say, certainly regulated in, mm. as, as to what you can say in these reports over the years. When we started out at the same company, mm. whenever that was, actually 30 years ago, this is how I was only I was only five at the time. It yeah, was, I, was, uh, I was an absolute ge- I was a child genius. Yeah, yeah I was already <laughs> I was already fifty at the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Um, so um, the, it, it was um, it was quite. A, I, I had a lot of freedom. I could basically use my creativity mm. uh, in in the way in which I valued the the company which i did value at the time when you say that do you mean that you got a special valuation dartboard out and you just threw those darts in there you know just to get some no no that's a stochastic process that's it okay okay that also exists um, i don't yeah. want to talk about it <laughs> so how much how much is this how much is this value hold on a minute i'll just uh just to get this dart hold on yep uh I think that's uh, about 180, uh, 180 million pounds. <laughs> Would have probably been more accurate than my valuation. <laughs> Actually, I mean, the, the, there is famously the uh, experiment to have monkeys throw uh, darts, darts at the financial pages of the Financial Times. Excellent. And then basically pick those values and put them into a portfolio. Yes. And we would all, of course want that portfolio to under to perform much worse mm. than that of professional fund managers yes i leave you to think <laughs> he won yeah. whether it did or not yeah. well this is the thing so when i was actually i can't say where i was working at this and who was involved but um there was quite a controversial um salesperson he was really good real really intelligent uh, and everything he used to put out these amazing um these amazing notes and uh, when you're allowed to do that sort of thing and um he was a constant thorn in the side of the manage the japanese management at the time um because he used a um mechanical toy monkey um to choose so he was choosing basically um japanese stocks they have these um uh, numeric codes so they're four numbers right and um and that you know that's the, the the identifier and i've forgotten how he did it but he got this monkey to choose like a, a portfolio of 10 um uh, 10 companies um using this monkey and um he used to this i mean you really can't get away with doing this normally but this guy could get away with all sorts of things he used to put in his um in his notes to his clients um how the monkey performed versus the um versus the analysts and it got so bad that the analysts would get really nervous <laughs> by the end of the year because if the monkey was performing better than them the 
the you know the boss would notice so um yeah it was so funny but yeah that's sometimes like i say at the end of the day right with with all this it's with valuations it's best it's your best guess it's your i mean there's certain things that have a an actual value but then there's others where you think well how do you value that so yeah let's yes but let us not be overly dismissive there is no no, i'm not being i'm not being i just thought it was funny and the fca i think wants to limit the extent to which the monkey (laughs) does these valuations yeah yeah. Because, I mean, we, we can't talk about this, of course. This this is some, something which you learn at university and it's quite difficult. But I'll just give you one example. For, for, for example, this. If you increase, if, if, if you value a company using cost of equity, then according to the capital asset pricing model, the cost of equity is based on the formula that you use the risk-free rate plus something times the equity risk premium. Which I think is something we all know, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just spooling it down so that you get a feel for the technicality of this. The something is the beta. The beta is a correlation coefficient between what the company does and what the market does. Now, this is all good. Would debt come in? Yes, it does. If you have a higher debt quantity in the company, Hmm. then the debt to equity ratio actually means that you have to adjust the beta. You have to adjust the beta using the debt-to-equity coefficient in a particular way. There's a formula for that. And I kid you not, there are not that many people in the analysts community who A, know this, Mm -hmm. and B, do it. Mm. And that is one way how valuations can differ. Mm. If I value one company which has a debt-to-equity coefficient of something very large, and then I value another company which has no debt, and I use the same cost of equity unadjust, where the beta is unadjusted, well, then the result is not going to be right. Hmm. But it is not going to be not right because some woozy assumptions hmm. which you can make or you can't make, or the monkey hmm. might have done better or worse, hmm. it's because the science wasn't followed in the hmm. valuation. Mm. Once you follow the signs, well, then you can actually talk about the variability of the assumptions around it and the sensitivity mm. of your results. But mm. you can only do it then. And mm. if the FCA uh, plans to maybe look at analysts' models who value companies in this way to just see whether, for example, the beta has been adjusted in light of the debt to equity or whether whether people do something completely silly. Um, There are numerous examples. They're all very technical. I mean, I had questions like, for example, uh, there's another formula which is um, known as um, the sort of growth formula, which is which is a quotient return on equity minus growth. And in the denominator, you have cost of equity minus growth. This is, I see you smiling, but this is completely standard. I mean, everybody knows about this. If you don't know that <laughs> formula, then you should really yeah, be yeah, out of Let's talk about this all the time. I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. Yeah. So, no, 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 no. so, yeah, so the, the, the question there is, um, uh, I'm not going to go into to technicalities, but 
somebody asked me something about this formally and I said, well, you, in, in, the, in the circumstances which you just outlined, this formula doesn't exist because it's not defined. The mm. series on which it relies diverges. Mm. And the person just looked at me as if they had never heard that before. You can mm. only sum the series and then summarize it into this particular quotient if the series converges. We can't mm. do it if the series diverges. Again, a lot of people don't know this. And so I'm coming over like a little bit glib here. But the point is, when I hear a salesman talking about the monkey, the mm. monkey doesn't know any of that. The mm. monkey comes up with results following a completely stochastic oh, process. Yeah. Sometimes they will outperform the analysts. Sometimes they will not. Before I have a time series of 20 years, seeing how the monkey performs versus the analysts, mm. I cannot say that the monkey does better unless I know that they systematically do better. Hmm. And I wouldn't necessarily say the monkey will not do systematically better. It's possible. Hmm. I don't know. But um, back to the uh, news story, I think that perhaps there is also what is perhaps needed is a little bit of a almost like a, like a quality control of the um knowledge of the analyst which goes into the building of the model mm. you 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 know the old adage all models are wrong but some are useful mm. i mean mm. that's true but some models are wrong because they're incorrectly built mm. and that can't be right i mean you have to make sure that the right technology is implemented. And in the second step, you can then talk about the assumptions which have gone in. Mm. And, um, and that, to that extent, I think th th this may actually be a sensible probe. But there's also a cutoff point. If you force people to be too behoven on a preconceived framework, then, <clears throat> then you're not going to be able to find a range of market valuations which are which are interesting. For example, if you would say, well, a tech company, absurd example, you, you, you can never price in more than 15% earnings growth or whatever. Not that the FCA would do that. I'm giving an example of a, of a deliberately um, absurd way of doing this. Then obviously you would choke off the uh, outcome, the, the sensible outcome of valuations as well. So there's a fine line in the middle but, you know, from my experience of what analysts' models can be like, mine included, mm. <laughs> I, I would say that that's probably not a bad probe if it mm. doesn't go too far. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I mean, I, like I say, I think that it, it needs to be done, but it's kind of, you know, how, how is it going to be implemented? And, exactly. and, you know, that's really difficult, I think. And also, does it make the process... <clears throat> excuse me, too onerous. Mm. The, the, the more cooks there are, the, the less good the dish is going to mm. taste. And, and, and that's true. I mean, already now there's a lot of regulation which needs to be observed. You know, I can't just write anything. There is already a lot of regulation. Then it needs to go to the lawyers. Then it needs to go to the bankers and to the mm. company and etc. And I think there is a lot of regulation already um, enshrined in the process of bringing company to market in London, mm. which has recently shown up as perhaps overly 
onerous relative to the New York Stock Exchange, which is one reason, I think a minor reason, but still a reason why we appear to be losing lots of IPOs to, to the US company. Mm. So let's be careful what we wish for and yeah. make things uh, e even more bureaucratic and difficult. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so let's move on to the final uh, final topic, um, and this is the increasing need for space insurance. Now, I think I've seen recently how um, a, a couple of um, big law firms have launched space. <laughs> Sorry, I, I only just thought of that. And they just launched uh, their new space um, uh, divisions. Um, and I mean, obviously, they're doing that because they see the need to do that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, when particularly with these low orbiting satellites, you know, the, 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 yes. the fact that these are going to become much more prevalent um, over, oh, you know, over the course of time. Even just that, you know, there's, there'll be those satellites, there'll be satellites as part of defense, you know, systems and all that kind of stuff potentially in the future. Um, insurance is definitely needed. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I, I thought that that was interesting that we're, we're seeing this. But, I mean, you've got some very interesting thoughts on that as well. Well, um... <laughs> space is pretty cool isn't it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it's the like, final frontier apparently it is indeed absolutely um yeah. to boldly go yeah i mean most of our listeners are going to be far too young to know what any of that means yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's all enough and horrible it's almost like it's in the universe far far away isn't it really <sighs> Oh, yes, yes, it is indeed quite so. Yes, still got it. Do no, you remember Donald Trump in his mm. first and I hope only uh, legislature period uh, actually established a space force? Yes. <laughs> right, cool. Moving on. Um, yeah. Cool. So what we're talking about here are satellites. Mm -hmm. And there are different satellites in different orbits. Mm -hmm. There are geostationary satellites, which are just basically in the orbit of the Earth, and they, as the Earth turns, they sort of stay there. So mm. they are stationary in orbit, and these are the sort of things which you use for GPS and stuff mm. like that. They are higher in orbit than the so-called, what are they called? L low Earth orbit satellites. Mm -hmm. um, and they are also more expensive. So the insurance value of one of these geo-satellites, geostationary satellites, is typically like $250 million, something like that. And the insurance value of one of the LEOs, the lower Earth orbit satellites, is sort of in the region of $500,000 to $1 million. So, so that's, that's the sort of order of magnitude we're talking about here. So that's point number one. Point number two is, and I, and I think I'm right on this, I would need to fact check this, but I'm pretty sure that this sort of space debris, which has recently mm. made headlines, is sort of, well, it's caused by the LEOs, and it's therefore sort of in the order of um, the distance from the Earth where the LEOs operate. Mm -hmm. Now, that means that there is more risk of collision 
for a lower Earth mm. orbit satellite than there is for a geostationary satellite. Mm. And as a consequence of that, it is not just that there is a larger risk, but the risk is also more difficult to quantify. Um, which means, and, and, and this is in insurance always the case, I mean, if you can't quantify a risk well, then you don't know what to charge for it. Mm. So that's the reason I think that about 50% of geostationary satellites, I don't know why I do this. I mean, it's just indicate a high orbit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So why why fifty percent of geostationary satellites are insured, mm. but but virtually none of the LEOs is insured. I think there are about six thousand LEOs, and about sixty of them are insured. And so the reason is one uh, one reason for this is I believe that it is more difficult to calculate the risk. Uh, of the, the the risk of damage, the risk of collision for the LEOs. But there's another reason that the LEOs are not very expensive to build. And there is an inbuilt redundancy in these. So Elon Musk, I think he doesn't care very much if he loses one or two or three of these, because there are when he launches them, he launches 10 at a time or maybe even more. And if three of them are taken out by some refrigerator which might be floating around of whatever the space debris is which we encounter there he doesn't really care and so in other words um it's it's partly that these are deliberately left uninsured and partly that the risk is more difficult to calculate so that's the situation at the moment but obviously what we're having is that as we launch more and more of these leos by the way, the, the um, what these do is communication. These are mostly communication satellites, also mm. spy networks and things mm. like that. Uh, so as we launch more and more of these, the risk of collision is going to be far greater and eventually there's going to be a tipping point when we have to decide what to do. Either siphon off all this, all this uh, froth of... Um, of uh, rusty old satellites if we can but that's hard to do technologically or in fact to start insuring these satellites so then the question becomes well what do we charge for them we being the insurance industry what premium do i put on the risk and um well there is always a mathematical way to calculate this and a commercial way. And the two sort of don't necessarily go together. So if an actuary in the back chamber calculates the risk and then comes up with the theoretical premium that they ought to charge, then the next thing what you need to do is to actually see whether the market is good enough to actually deliver this premium. And 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 the market for space uh, satellites is linked to the aviation markets mm. and aviation rates aren't very high at the moment and so there is a disconnect i think between what you ought to charge and what you can commercially charge being a third reason why the leos are sort of left uninsured mm. and yeah so there will be a tipping point we I, I don't know what's going to happen it looks to me as if this is a an, an industry from the point of view of the insurance industry it's a sector which is going to be developed 
as we get more LEOs into orbit still. And also importantly, as we are going to beginning to see that the space debris is going to be or is going to start being an issue, an obstacle for other technological projects which we wish to do. For example, launching space probes uh, which land on asteroids. We don't want to be hit. You know, the Earth doesn't want to be hit by or, or Cephas or whatever the, the thing is called, which is going to hit or not, or just not hit in 2029, but it's coming back in 2034. So we better know what we're doing here. Um, or of course, things like um, uh, space uh, missions, which go to the moon and from there to Mars. I mean, this is all the sort of docket of NASA is quite full for the next uh, 20, 30 years. And if these various technological, sorry, if these various um, space missions which NASA is planning are beginning to be impacted by the ever-densening um, uh, shell of uh, space debris which is which is encircling the Earth, then I think uh, then I think insurance is going to become a lot more even of a necessity than it is now. And when this happens, then there will be a rate and a price for these risks, which is a commercial rate, which is going to develop in the market. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's it's not as if the space industry is uh, space insurance industry is not well developed. I mean, we're not talking about small specialized companies. We're talking about AXA. Uh, AXA XL to be precise, but that's a <clears throat> that's a subsidiary of AXA. We're talking about Munich Re, Swiss Re, Lloyd's of London, and the London market. So the companies there are well established and they know what they're doing. Superb. Um, it's really, I think it's a very interesting area, and obviously something that is is going to grow. I would think, you know, I mean. It, it seems to me there's there's a there's a huge potential um for it to grow for a number of reasons so um yeah i mean i think that so if we amount... if, if we were to work in the space yeah <laughs> the space yeah, right, yeah, that, yeah. then we would have our drinks at the restaurant at the end of the universe there we go Another everybody good reference. is going to think what, what on earth about? is he talking about and those people who know are thinking ralph you are so dad's joke that <laughs> yeah so yeah. old I'm absolutely sorry. i mean so sorry. you know in terms of the the scope of of upside here i mean i think you could say that it is you know could be to infinity and beyond um so yeah so anyway on on that note on that note, um, we'll leave it there. Um, but uh, yeah, some really interesting stuff this week. I mean, there's always interesting stuff. I mean, that's that's the beauty, I think, of what we talk about is that there's always something. There's always yeah. something going on in the world that is worth talking about. So, um, so we're very lucky in that. And, and in sometimes that sense. it even gets published. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Don't worry. It's going to get done. Anyway, thank you very much indeed. On that. On that note, have an absolutely um, lovely day, evening, weekend, whatever it is you're up Week. to. Yeah, depending, yeah. And uh, and uh, yeah, and we will see you again. Uh, should be able to see you again next week. So many Absolutely. thanks. 
Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, guys.